Well, good morning. Um, we have a couple exciting things to uh, talk about here before we get into our time in the Word. Uh, one, I meant to do this last week, but um, honestly, I'm a, I'm a forgetful man at some points. And, um, and so we're going to do that this week. Um, our brother Earl went to prison uh, this week, um, not as an inmate, but as a minister, and uh, has begun ministry, his ministry with uh, Youth for Christ uh, at the um, juvenile detention facility in Galesburg, I believe, and uh, is going to be uh, doing some more of that, going into the prisons, talking to young people who often are without a lot of hope and giving them the hope of Jesus Christ uh, through faith in uh, through faith in Christ we know that all sins all all of our struggles can find healing and restoration and hope and so we want to pray for Earl and commission him to that ministry so if you're an elder here or if your name is Earl come on up and uh, we'll uh, we'll we want to pray for Earl and uh, and commission him and encourage him in that ministry so if I could have the elders come join us, I think that Josh is on his way up, so um, we want to lay hands on Earl here and uh, and pray over him as he begins that ministry. Uh, I want to read you um, a passage. This is maybe an unusual passage to read um, in this context, but uh, it's a good one. This is from Matthew chapter 25. Uh, it's about the final judgment, and it says this, um, beginning in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. The King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed Me. I was naked, you clothed Me. I was sick, you visited Me. I was in prison, and you came to Me. And then the righteous will answer Him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we lift up Earl to you. Uh, we know he is a man with a humble heart and a deep desire to serve uh, the least of these in our community and to reach those uh, in prison who are without hope and a lot of times without friends, uh, without family who love them deeply. And Father, to tell them of a loving Father who sent His own Son into the world to lay down His life for their sins, that they might be forgiven, that they might have new life, and that even though there in prison that they might be set free by the Spirit of life. And Father, I pray that as we send him out uh, back into the, the prison system, back among the, the juvenile detention uh, facilities around our area, Father, I pray that you would give his word power 
by your Holy Spirit. Uh, power that comes not from Him, but from your Spirit, that He might speak the good news of the Gospel of Christ, and that many might come to know you through His ministry and through His testimony. And Father, we commission Him to your service and uh, pray that it would in every way glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Now, we have a couple other things. Proud of you, man. Uh, we have a couple other things that uh, are important. Uh, one is, uh, let's see, Sandy Dunbar. There you are. Uh, Sandy, if, you, if you'd raise your hand so everybody can see you. This is one of the two women in our church named Sandy Dunbar. <laughs> okay. And I uh, don't want to confuse anybody, but this one, this Sandy, who's married to Jeff, um, is uh, the new head of our fellowship ministry and um, overseeing the cafe area out here. Uh, coffee, snacks, uh, you know, potlucks, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So if you have an event coming up, uh, that you are going to need some of those kind of supplies for. Sandy is going to be in charge of you know, the kitchen and the cafe in that area. So please communicate your needs with Sandy. We want to we want to be a, a place that is able to welcome everybody, and um, and and be hospitable. And so a big part of that is our fellowship ministry. Um, so Sandy uh, is the new person in charge of that. Um, and uh, any questions, comments, concerns that you have, direct those to her, and um, and uh, she'll do a good job for us, I'm confident, in uh, overseeing that ministry. All right, so thank you, Sandy, for willing to, your willingness to serve um, in that capacity. And then last thing, uh, I'm in charge, as you know, of the Wild Game Feast. The Wild Game Feast is coming up in about three weeks, roughly. And um, we still need a bunch of help. Um, so, uh, specifically, we need some help in the kitchen uh, in making sure that all that food gets out to all of those people that will be here. Um, we need a bunch of help with the, uh, with the barbecue grills. Uh, we'll have several of those going. Uh, barbecue grills and smokers. Now, we've got somebody, Marty Davis, to oversee the overall cooking of that stuff, but we need some, some guys who are willing to do the important work of uh, A, stand around and watch meat cook, and B, uh, run it back and forth through the kitchen, <laughs> okay? And so if you are thinking that might be your spiritual gift, uh, we'd love to have you, you sign up. You don't have to be a guy to do that. You can do that as a woman, too. And, um, and we'd love to have your help with that. We'd love to have your help with kitchen, which involves cutting out food, cutting cake, uh, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and also uh, with setup and teardown, this room turns into uh, as much as we can make look like one uh, into a hunting lodge. Um, and uh, we put all kinds of tables and chairs and so forth in here, decorate those tables and hang a bunch of mounts and that kind of thing. And it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. And then we got to take it all back down except the mounts. We leave those up for Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> but uh, all the tables and stuff have to come out and uh, set back up for a normal Sunday morning worship service, and all the tables have to go back where they came from. So we need some help in those areas, and if you uh, feel like, you know what, I have the gift of service, I'm going to jump in there and do some of that. Put your name on one of the sheets out front, 
uh, outside these doors and we'll get going. Now, uh, with all that, uh, I want to turn our attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians to get back to the Word of God, which is our primary thing that we are about here. Uh, Rick Rosetto says, Bible is our middle name, and, uh, and that's both true, and, and that's true in the metaphorical as well as the literal sense. We are, um, we are about the Word of God, and we want to spend a lot of time in it this morning. So if you want to flip your Bible over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and as you make your way there, I'll just share this with you. One of the things that Karen and I have repeatedly said to one another over the years as our kids have grown up is we are raising adults and not children. And so we have always pushed our kids pretty hard, actually, to accept increasing levels of responsibility and to take responsibility and ownership over their own choices. So, give a few examples. Right around the time each kid turned 10 years old, uh, they became responsible for getting themselves up for school, making their own breakfast, unless Karen was feeling generous that day and wanted to make pancakes or whatever. Uh, they would also be responsible to do their own laundry. Uh, they get their own basket, and here's how the machine works, y'all. And uh, we're not doing that anymore for you. And it's not because we don't care about you, but because we do. And we want you to be a responsible adult. Uh, it meant summer jobs at 15. Uh, Part-time jobs during school, full-time jobs in the summer from age 16 on. It meant that beginning about 8th grade, we didn't do much more than occasionally check teachers to see if they're getting their homework done. But I'm not sitting there and supervising night. You're responsible to get your stuff done, so make it happen. Um, it meant teaching them how to cook some basic things and expecting them to feed themselves when we weren't home. And we, again, expected these things not because we didn't love them, but because we did. And we want them to thrive as adults. Amen? Because the whole point of raising a kid is not that you, you wind up with a physically grown baby, but that you wind up with an adult at the time that they attain adulthood physically, they also attain adulthood in terms of their emotional development and their spiritual growth and their ability to function as an adult independently of us, right? Uh, so, now let me be very clear. We weren't and we aren't perfect parents. If you are a young person here, let me encourage you, you don't have perfect parents, and by the way, if you grow up and become a parent, you won't be a perfect one either. Okay? Nobody gets perfect parents. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way, both because we're sinners and also because we had never done this before. Amen? It's my first time to be a dad, and I didn't know what I was doing, and neither did Karen, and um, you kind of learn as you go, right? But um, in spite of that, God worked through, and sometimes despite our efforts, and His grace is bearing fruit in our kids' lives. And our greatest joy now, in these days, as our nest is emptying out, and we've only got one left at home, is seeing God's grace work itself out in the lives of our kids. When they succeed, we are hugely encouraged, and we thank God for His grace to us. Amen? That we had a part in that. Now, maybe, maybe, depending on the day, we evaluate the size of our part in that, <laughs> right? Um, we, 
some, there are some days we go, Lord, do you see what your child is doing? <laughs> right? And there are other days where you're like, that's my boy. <laughs> right? But, uh, but nonetheless, God has been very gracious and very kind. Right? And in the same way, bring all this up, not to talk about parenting, but to talk about making disciples. Because that's the subject of our passage today. That when you're making disciples, and by the way, if you're a parent, guess what you're doing? You're making disciples. You're teaching them how to follow Jesus. That's your job. Teaching them to follow Jesus as they follow you. You're making disciples. But if you make disciples as Paul and the other apostles did and like Jesus did and commanded us to do, what you're trying to do is to help the people that you are discipling come to maturity so that they can be what? Fully functional, spiritually mature, spiritual adults. And as they do, what you'll find is that your greatest joy, your greatest encouragement, your greatest reason to praise God is the maturity that you're beginning to see in those that you disciple. And that joyful time when that begins to happen, is the subject of our passage today. And I'm really excited to share it with you and to look at it together. Uh, so if you have your Bible there open, the First Thessalonians chapter 3, I invite you to stand with me as I read, beginning in verse 6, through the end of the chapter. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith, and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Father, we are looking forward to the day when Jesus comes. And we, depending on the day, sometimes we want that to be a long way. Sometimes we, we want it to already have happened. But Father, we are looking forward to the day when Jesus comes. Father, I pray that, that we would find our joy in serving you as you have called us to do. And that we might see in each one of our lives the joy of pouring ourselves into someone else and seeing them come to follow you as we do. And Father, I pray you give us each that blessing as you've given each of us that calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, as you look at the text, it's important to remember the context, right? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Uh, so saith Howard Hendricks, and I never argue with him. All right, but um, but 
you want to always look at your your passage in context. What is going on in the book that it appears in? And what's going on is this. Paul had sent Silas back to Philippi and Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the churches that they had planted there alongside Paul. And Paul could not go back yet because the unbelieving Jewish people in both cities had stirred up riots there against him in both places. Now think about this. How opposed do you have to be to the gospel going out that you start a riot there? Right? But that's what happened every place that Paul went, or many of the places Paul went. So Paul was left by himself in Athens. And he goes to preach the gospel in Athens. And by the way, it doesn't go great. Okay, we all remember Paul's great speech on Mars Hill. But as a matter of fact, what actually results from Paul's preaching is only a handful of people coming to faith in Athens. So think about this with me. Paul is all alone for a while. In the previous six weeks, this is what's happened. He's endured a night at the center of two different riots. He's spent a night in the stocks in prison. He's been publicly uh, beaten. Very likely beaten naked in the public square in one of these places. He's probably still healing from all of the scars, from having uh, having those uh, sticks applied to his body all over. He has no idea where he is, whether he has spent all of this effort and endured all of this suffering planting churches only to have the wave of persecution that followed him doing that, that drove he and Silas and Timothy out whether those churches have flourished or died. And he's just finished up his ministry in Athens and, you know, like a handful of people come to faith in Jesus. And so he's probably at least a little bit tempted to quit. But he doesn't quit. Instead, what he does is he goes on down to Corinth, which is the next major city down the, uh, down the Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, in Greece there to continue his, min- his mission. And that's where Silas and Timothy meet back up with him. You can read that story in Acts chapter 18. And they give him their reports there of how things are going in Philippi and in Thessalonica. Now, if you, with that in mind, this is all that's happened in Paul's last six weeks. I've been beaten. I've spent a night in the stocks. been in prison been chased out of the last two towns I was in. I go to the next town. A handful of people come to faith in Jesus, but mostly nobody's all that interested. They'd rather continue their idolatry. So I go to the next place, and all of a sudden, here come my buddies. And when they get there, they are overflowing with good news. Can you imagine the kind of encouragement this is? After all the things you've endured, instead of killing off the churches that they had planted, persecution is producing maturing faith in all their brand new disciples. And that good news bears 
three kinds of fruit in Paul and the other apostles' life. First, it's deeply encouraging. Paul writes in verses 6-8 through as a man who is just rejoicing about the affection that he, the fact that that he and he and Timothy and Silas all have this great affection for these Thessalonian believers. They love them, and how could you not? You've suffered for these people. You've ministered among them. You've seen them come to faith in Jesus in a real way, and and they miss them. But you don't know how they feel about you. And so when, when Timothy comes back, he says, let me tell you, guys, what we feel about them, they feel the same way about us. Their faith is growing stronger just as we hoped that it would. And all of this, Paul says, brings us comfort despite our trials. What are they thinking right now? Let me put it in, in a little more modern, non-biblical English. All right? They're thinking, yeah, baby, it was worth it. It was worth it. In fact, look at how Paul describes it. This is what he says. His language is a little less colloquial than mine. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Here's what he means by that. There is nothing better there is nothing better than seeing your children, either your spiritual children or the ones that God entrusted to you to raise in your house, growing up into maturity in the Lord. And there is nothing, if you love Jesus, there's nothing you would not do to see that happen. No price you would not pay, nothing you would not count as worth it to see that happen in the lives of your kids. Your life is to see them growing. And it's like death. In fact, it's a grief worse than death if they don't. Amen? But in addition to encouragement, their maturing faith, these Thessalonians growing in the Lord, produces deep thankfulness and joy as we see in verse 9. This verse, verse 9, is a is a rhetorical question, or at least it's the beginning of it, uh, indicating that Paul and Silas and Timothy can hardly contain the joy that they have and the thankfulness that they offer to God. They are constantly thanking God for what He is doing in the lives of these believers in Thessalonica. This is what he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? In other words, we can't thank God enough for all of you all. Every time we think about you, we thank God. And we think about you all the time. And so we just thank God all the time. And we know that we don't deserve what, is, what has happened when we see your faith. We're so thankful. We're so thankful. We're just overwhelmed with joy. I can't thank God enough. And I constantly thank Him for you. And that thankfulness just overflows into prayers for their faith to just keep increasing and to produce even more love and holiness. In fact, 
uh, verse 10 says, We pray more, most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 10 is about the fact that they are praying not only in, thank, in thankfulness, but also praying for another opportunity to build them up and supply what is lacking in their faith. And what he means by that is it's not that the Thessalonians don't have faith. Amen? They do. And it's not that Paul regards them as like he's, he and Silas and Timothy are like the varsity and you guys are B team or JV or you know whatever. Okay, that's not it. He's saying, look, we couldn't teach you everything that we wanted to teach you. There's more to the Christian faith that you don't know. You remember that um, the book of Acts tells us that he was in Thess- Paul was in Thessalonica sharing in the synagogue on three Sabbaths. So in other words, for about three weeks. He was probably there a bit longer because eventually they, they got kicked out of the synagogue. They couldn't come back there anymore. So maybe they were there five or six weeks before the riots started. But can I just say, as someone who's been here 16 years, that there's still a lot more I would love to teach you and I couldn't get it done in six weeks? Paul says there's a whole bunch more I want to teach you. A whole bunch more that I want to share with you about the Christian life. And you don't have it all yet. And I want to give it to you. So the apostles are praying that they're going to get an opportunity to continue to help the Thessalonians to grow in their faith. And in fact, talking about praying for that opportunity leads to a prayer for that opportunity. And it's written in uh, verse 11 to 13. That's what you see. Um, If you carefully read the prayer, you'll see that there are three parts to it. Verse 11 is a prayer that they will all be reunited. You know, as you read that, I think we can sometimes tend to forget that these letters are written by real people to real people with real relationships on both ends. With genuine affection, deep relationships. They want to be with these Thessalonians and they know that God will have to work it out because the last time they were together, it ended badly. Amen? Um, I've, I've preached a lot of places, many countries around the world, and none of those countries was there ever a riot when I proclaimed the Gospel. Right? Uh, I'm free to go back to every country I have been to. Paul was not free to go back to Thessalonica. So he's like, we're going to pray that God would work it out so that we could be be together again. In addition, they pray for the Thessalonians' love to increase. I think that's really interesting. You know, we pray for a lot of things, for all kinds of needs that people have. When was the last time you ever prayed for somebody's love to increase? can't remember that one making the prayer list too very often. But that's what Paul prays here. He says, we pray that the Lord will make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you.
I think sometimes when we think about people growing in maturity in their faith, we think about their knowledge increasing. And certainly as you come to know Jesus better, your knowledge of the Word is going to grow. Amen? That is a, that is a requirement. But Paul points this out too, that as you grow deeper into maturity in Christ, not just that your knowledge of who Jesus is and what God says then grows. It's that your love grows for one another. Who's the one another? I'll give you a hint. Look to your left and your right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Y'all are the one another, right? When you, and that's, I always think it's interesting. People talk about sometimes, you know, you don't have to attend church to be a Christian, Right? And I go, yeah, but there's there's some practical aspects to obeying Jesus that have to you have to be in one to follow, right? And what are they? Well, they're all the one another. Forgive one another, love one another, bear with one another, pray for one another, uh, honor one another above yourselves. You know, there's a whole long list. There's like 35 of these commands, right? Hard to do that in isolation. Like you can't go be a, a Christian successfully on a desert island. That doesn't work well. It's a communal deal, right? Any more than you can cut your finger off and have it thrive by itself, right? You've got to be connected to the body, and so maturity looks like increasing love for one another. And then, in addition to that. Um, look at verse 13. I think this is interesting. It says, So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. This is a prayer that the Lord... Now, now think about that. Would establish your hearts blameless it's connected to the earlier part about love. And now, holiness. When Jesus comes back. A couple things here to notice about that. It's God who helps us grow in holiness as we obey His Word. Amen? That's what this says. That God would establish your heart's blameless. Not that you would, but that God would work in your life to establish you blameless in holiness before Him. As you obey the Word, it's, it's God, our Father, the One before whom we will stand that establishes us. We don't make ourselves righteous before God. In fact, we can't. As He works in our lives, He makes us righteous. And also, uh, don't miss the reminder, this is now the third time in this book, there's one in chapter 1. There's one at the end of chapter 2, and now there's here at the end of chapter 3, there's another reminder, Jesus is coming back. Word of encouragement, there's another one coming up in chapter 4. Jesus is coming back. And the point of all of those reminders is this. It's to remind us to pursue the holiness that God desires for us. And the point is this. That Paul is praying for them that they'll have a fully mature faith which produces both love and holiness. Two things that we tend 
to separate from one another, but which a deep and mature faith produces at the same time. We tend to want to divide these things, right? We, want, we tend to want to say that, well, if you're really loving, you don't care that much about holiness. Or if you're really holy, you don't have to be kind. <laughs> right? Paul prays that they would be blameless before God and that doing that would involve both abounding love for other people and personal holiness at the same time. So, God honoring love is holy in every way. God honoring holiness is loving toward other people. There's a lot could be said here to apply this text, but I want to focus our attention on just three things here. Um, number one, that as you look at the text as a whole, what you see is that good disciple-making friendships build up both sides of the relationship. It's not just that it's not just the uh, you know the grand poobah and the baby birds, right? And he he or she feeds them and they grow to maturity. No, there's mutual upbuilding that happens on both ends of the relationship. On the disciple maker side, there's encouragement and thankfulness and joy as your disciple grows and growing love for you to, uh, uh, toward them. And on the disciple person's side, there's growing affection also for their friend and growing faith and love and holiness. In other words, God uses these kinds of relationships within the church to cause everyone, the more mature and the less, to grow at the same time. If you are a growing disciple, you ought to be helping someone else to grow, and that helps you to grow as well. And also, you need to see this, you need to make disciples. There's no command in the Scripture of, uh, here, at least, about disciple making, but there are lots of commands elsewhere in your Bible, and there are abundant examples in this text and in this book of what it looks like in action. And if Paul did it, and Silas did it, and Timothy did it, and we're commanded to do it, then guess what? You need to make disciples. And you need to make them like this, with deep affection, a willingness to suffer, that you might help someone else to grow. By this point in your Christian life, you should have at least one, and probably more than one, that you have helped and are helping to maturity in Christ. And if the answer to my question of who are you pouring your life into is, uh, huh? Let me just ask you this. What are you waiting on? You have Jesus' command. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. What are you waiting on? Remember what the writer of the Hebrews said? By this time, you ought to be teachers. Right? Those of you who have sat as members of this church for this long, you've been here six months, by this time you ought to be teaching someone. If you've sat here for the entire time I've been here, 16 years, 
by this time you ought to be teachers. What are you waiting on? Find someone in your house, your neighborhood, your workplace, your family, who needs to know more about Jesus and who knows less than you that you can help and encourage and pray for and with and build up. And you'll grow along the way just as you help them grow. Last thing, love and holiness are inseparable in, in, in uh, everyone's maturity. You don't really get one without the other. You don't really get one without the other. Somebody who is really holy but unloving is a contradiction in terms. Because God's love and holiness are, are both perfectly expressed in an unlimited way in Him. And He expect, expects them to be expressed fully in us as well. The Holy Spirit who lives in us is both fully loving and fully holy. And He expects us who are indwelt by Him to be fully loving and fully holy also. Is there a growth period in that? Yes. But you can't separate it. You know, there are churches out there that will tell you that, well, because we're so loving, we don't need to worry about that holiness thing. And those commands in Scripture, you know, Jesus didn't mean that. No, Jesus meant every one of those. From be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect on down. He meant them all. But also, as we grow in holiness, our love for other people should grow as well. They grow up alongside each other at the same time in all of us. So that we do not become people who are, as the guy said, are so heavenly minded are not any earthly good. Right? That's, a, that's, not, a, that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone whose life is devoted to God and who pursues holiness out of love for Him, and that love for Him overflows into love for other people. That's what a Christian does. So as we pursue Christ, let's not forget about either one of these, but pursue them both. Now, I'm to the end of what I need to say today, and I can think of no better way to conclude our time in the Word together then by praying over you and over me the words that Paul concludes his passage with this prayer. So I want to read it again to us in an attitude of prayer, verses 12 and 13. Let's pray. God our Father, we pray that You will make us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that you may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.